0: Sandy Weisenberg is an award-winning writer, editor, and teacher who's been called seriously funny. In an essay on the craft of writing in Tri-Quarterly Magazine, she gives us a sense of her understanding about what makes a good piece of creative nonfiction, a piece that endures. And subtext must just be a key for her. Masterclass points to us to Ernest Hemingway, relied on subtext in his minimalist approach to writing and even coined a term for it, the iceberg theory. He believed deeper meanings of character and plot should live below the surface of the text, just as the bulk of an iceberg floats beneath the surface of the water. Weisenberg tells us, subtext I think has something to do with immortality. If people are digging into the meaning of your writing, then they're engaged with it and they will keep it alive and that's what we want we don't want to die we have conversations rife with subtext we say the words without thinking casually but there is something underneath them how does this happen how does the underlayer form weisenberg has a manifesto in her writing life and it's in praise of dense creative non-fiction Not stupid dense, but thick dense, as in anthropologist Clifford Geertz's thick description, meaning that his form of ethnography was to record what the subject did, blink an eye, and also the meaning of it, was it a wink or a twitch? He advocated recording phenomena in context, which sounds to me, says Weisenberg, like common sense, but much of what academics discover seems like common sense. Blame it on my background in journalism. My manifesto is, let's have layers of meaning and images and rhythms and turns of phrase. Language that's rich and dense, clustered. Even in newspaper journalism, what's left of it, you can find subtext. And the reason it matters is that the subtext carries meaning. She continues, I started as creative nonfiction editor of another Chicago magazine in 1997. One thing that I find over and over and over is that people send in work that's worth only one reading. What they've sent is creative nonfiction, all right, which I define as an umbrella term to include essay, memoir, confession, list, rant, literary journalism, travel, and nature writing fragmented pieces, and more, but it's bad creative nonfiction. It could be uncreative nonfiction, which is written by formula and offers stereotypes and clichés and no meaning. What's slightly better than this is thin creative nonfiction, which can be sprightly and well-written, can have voice and rhythm, but has little meaning and little underneath it. It is not worth a second read. Sandy Weisenberg laying out her convictions about creative nonfiction, which she writes in a compelling way, so much so that we as readers want to return to what she's written many times to discover those layers that make her work so rich. Sandy Weisenberg won the 2022 Juniper Prize in Nonfiction for The Wandering Womb Essays in Search of Home to be published March 31st, 2023, by the University of Massachusetts Press. She's also published two prose collections and a non-fiction chronicle. She was a feature writer for the Miami Herald, and she's published prose and poetry in The New Yorker, Plowshares, Narrative, the Michigan Quarterly Review, and many other places. She's received a Pushcart Prize and fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. She's been the literary editor of TriQuarterly, the creative nonfiction editor of another Chicago magazine, and she is now the ACM's editor. Sandy Weisenberg will visit the University of Scranton this week to meet with students and offer a public reading tomorrow evening. Dr. Joe Krause is chair of the Department of English and Theater at the university and a longtime friend of Sandy Weisenberg. In anticipation of her visit to Scranton, Dr. Kraus stopped in at the WVIA studios to join in a conversation by phone with her. And we learn first about the visit
1: itself. Sandy's got a brand new book out, which is very exciting. It's a collection of essays, and the class for which I'm sort of ostensibly inviting her, though it's, it's a much larger than just a one-class experience, is a class on writing the essay. And so it's terrific to have practitioners of the highest order doing it, and, and the fact that, that Sandy is an old friend, it just adds to that.
0: Tell us about the book, Sandy. You mm-hmm. are someone who is curious, and you've roamed the world as well. Is all of that contained in these essays? Yeah,
2: some of it is. I am very curious. I was in journalism, and I was shy, but the curiosity sort of gave me some energy to approach people and ask questions. So curiosity is my main trait, I think. Yeah, The Wandering Womb is the title, and the subtitle is Essays in Search of Home. So The Wandering Womb, in a way, is me, because I am a female wandering around. But it's also the title essay, which is not personal in the sense that it's not about me and about my life. But it definitely has a voice and an attitude about the history of the term. And experts, I'm doing air quotes, from, including Aristotle and Hippocrates, would say that when a woman had some sort of trouble it was because her womb had wandered somewhere else in the body. And it's hard for us to imagine that they would think that, that it actually moved around. And if she had a headache, it was because the womb had wandered up to her head and you were trying to lure the womb back down. And if a woman had some sort of emotional problem, it was because there was something wrong with the womb. And that gave us the word hysteria, because the word for womb in Greek is hystera. So my essay roams from the early doctors and philosophers to Freud and also the surrealists. And I moved through association and sort of stream of consciousness. So that's how I can leap centuries.
1: And I love the notion of the whole term essay, um, another derivative word, is an attempt, an effort, a trial. And so I love the fact that in each each of these different ones, but that title one in in particular, that's what you're trying to do to explore some elements that you've already got a sense of, but you haven't quite pulled them together. That's that's the act of writing that, in fact, accomplishes that.
2: Yeah, like a lot of people, I don't know what I think until I write and I tell students if they're ambivalent about something, that's a great subject to write about. You asked what the book was about, and I told you what the title essay is about. But the other pieces are really about stages in my life, and they cover about 30 years. But it's not just me and interacting with people. There's also history in it and context and some sociology and politics. And the most political is, is about January 6th. But some of them are political in the way the second wave a feminist movement that so the personal
1: is political.
2: I do have dates and historic people, and I interview people from time to time.
1: And I, I love the fact that as you're sort of looking at, at this notion of history, it's also intertwined with the question of place. The subtitle of carries the idea of home, essays in search of home. And so I love that it's a series a succession of physical places, whether it's Chicago or Houston or Evanston or, uh, or Russia and some of the ones that go further back. So I'm struck by the sense that it's, it's a history that's, that's both geographic and historical.
2: Yeah, and I, one thing I ask is, who is we? Because sometimes I say sort of whimsically, we're from Lithuania. And that's a place I've never been, but that's where my grandmother was born. Mm-hmm. And I have a long piece called Grandmother Russia slash Selma. And it's about being in Selma, Alabama, where my great-grandparents brought their family at the turn of the last two centuries ago, so it's between the 19th and 20th centuries. And I talk somewhat about Jews in the South. And while I'm there, I went to a reenactment of the Battle of Selma, which was a battle of the Civil War. And I talked to a woman who was a settler, S U T L E R, which was the name of people who were merchants during the Civil War at the battlefield. And she was talking about how we couldn't get good thread during the blockade. And for her, we, we was, we were her ancestors in the South during the Civil War who could not get goods because of the blockade on ships coming to the South with thread, cotton, etc. And I didn't, I didn't probe. I mean, you don't want to be antagonistic and say... Well, how can you say we about these people who own slaves and we're on the wrong side? Uh, you just kind of have to
1: listen. Well, what What are some of the identities that you feel you've written yourself into, at least provisionally, in some of the essays?
2: Um, I'm a daughter. I'm a young person. I I went through sorty rush as sort of a lark when I was, too old. I was 29, and I was teaching at a university, and I think partly I was feeling uneasy. I mean, there's been a lot about imposter syndrome lately. I was feeling like, oh, I'm really teaching these grad students, and at the same time, I was playing a role in pretending I was 19 years old and going through sorority rush because I was just curious about it, and I thought, okay, I can write about it and go through it. So I was a spy going through sorority rush, but then I got into it and I had this like double view of myself that I was sort of believing my own cover story and believing I was 19 years old and and named Cynthia Mm -hmm. Levenson and I really could join a sorority and these girls were really nice to me and these girls weren't. I was also, I'm also a traveler in this, going to Europe. Uh, It's mostly what I write about, and sometimes I'm the Jew traveling, sometimes I'm the woman traveling, Uh, sometimes I'm the American, and to go back uh, again when I was a child, I write about going to summer camp, and I have asthma, and it wasn't under control then, and I always get asthma when I'm out in the country because I'm allergic to so much pollen and mold, and so I was the the camper who wasn't having a good time because I was basically sick. I was also a girl in sixth grade who was taking free fashion lessons at Neiman Marcus, which we didn't realize, you know, it was a a ruse to get us to buy more clothes and, and makeup. And at the same time, that same year, it may have been fifth grade, I don't know, I was putting away some music instruments in a storage closet And this boy in my class came and kissed me and turned off the light. And I said, turn the light back on, because I didn't want to kiss him. And then when I told my friends, they didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, maybe I was wrong to tell him to turn the light back on. So that was kind of a me too moment in the sense of you think you're supposed to comply with whatever a boy wants. And if you say no, you're in the wrong so I think all of us have a lot of different identities all the time at the same time.
1: Yeah, and as you as you speak, I'm reminded of some of the things that run through the, the book about the way in which as much as it is your mind that's that's exploring these ideas, it's also very much a, a sort of physical experience. Um, you talk in part, of course, about your experiences with cancer. And, and just even in the, what you're describing right there, this idea of, of a me-too moment. I don't know if you're able to, to sort of explain to someone who hasn't read the book the connection between that essaying in the mind and then wandering in the body.
2: I don't know. I think it's really easy to write about what you're thinking, and that's what the original essays were about. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about Montaigne, and I'm going to get his dates wrong, maybe the 15th century in France. He's considered the father of the essay. And he did write about some of his physical problems, but we think of the essay as the mind at work, which I believe Philip Lopate said. And it's easy to forget our mind is inside our head, which is inside a body. And we're aware of our bodies and we are bodies. And we are bodies moving through space and time. And I'm a body that just has one breath after I had breast cancer, and I didn't get reconstruction. And they they call the, the false breast, that's called a prosthesis, just as um, I had a prescription for a cranial prosthesis, which was a wig, but I never got that filled. So I have one essay about going around one-breasted and being ambivalent about it, and wondering if I'm just when breasted without a prosthesis because I want people to pay attention to me the same way. I want people to pay attention to me as a writer. I wrote a book about my breast cancer. It's called The Adventures of Cancer Bitch, and this essay is not in it. And while I was undergoing treatment, I didn't want to read anything by a woman who had died while she had breast cancer. So I did not read anything by Audre Lord about her breast cancer, didn't read her cancer journal. And then I read that after she had her surgery, she had a mastectomy on one side, she came back to see the doctor for an appointment, and she was in the waiting room, and the receptionist took her aside and said, you know, if you come without your prosthesis, it's bad for morale. And she said, bad for morale? And she's just thinking, not having a breast prosthesis is bad for morale? I mean, there's worse things than that there's the actual removal of the breast, which is cancerous. And that is more important than morale. And she sees herself as a warrior, just as she mentions Moshe Diane, who lost his eye in battle. And she feels like she lost her breast in battle with multinational corporations and pollution. And I've spoken to students, and I've said, if Breast cancer is an epidemic, as you hear. But nobody looks like they've had breast cancer, and it doesn't look like an epidemic. And most people do want to look like they have their breast. But in a way, it's covering up the epidemic.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the beautiful essays in the book. And it's, uh, it's not as demoralizing as it might sound from a distance. That in particular one is not, is not necessarily a humorous essay. But the, the sort of play of mind in this, there's, a, there's a, just a playfulness in the way you approach the world. I, I'd, I'd ask as a kind of summative question, if these are essays in search of home, do you feel that you've reached home in some fashion through writing them?
2: Yeah, maybe by writing each one, I found a home because you find a home in the essay. And then physically and temporally in life, I feel like I have a home. My husband and I have a home, and I feel at home in my home and I think some people don't. And it's interesting to think about where you feel at home and where you don't feel at home. I don't feel at home out in the country because I'm always afraid I'm going to get asthma. But I I see the book as a movement towards feeling at home. Though I didn't want to make it a perfect ending. So the third to last piece is about me trying to rent out my house or thinking about renting out part of my house when the Cubs were in the playoffs. because everyone in the neighborhood assumed that people would be coming here and that want to stay near the field. It turned out that people wanted to stay downtown, but I never had a chance to try to rent out my place because I kept having friends or friends of friends who wanted to be in the house, and that was fine. So I think you really feel at home if you can share it with others. In the Catholic worker community, um, they're anarchist Catholics. They have houses of hospitality, and they're, they're very happy to have guests because guests allow them to offer hospitality. And the piece after that is about traveling and good things and bad things about traveling. Then that makes it not so perfect, like not such a perfect ending. And then the very last piece is about how my husband and I think before we were married we would when we walked around we would look for spiders because we're both very interested in spiders and so we'd look at different houses around that that had light shining on them because that would attract bugs and the spiders would eat the bugs and go into the light and we had this spider house we used to go to and all of a sudden we realized it was gone And then we realized where we were living was the spider house. So that's kind of like a parable in a way, even though it's true that you're looking for something, you realize you have it. It's like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, she realizes she has, Dorothy realizes she has what she wants
1: and she could always go home. And I love the sense that the book itself, by bringing all the essays together, because I know you composed them over a great period of time, and then many of them excavate places and experiences that you had way before that. So as someone who's known you a long time and has had a chance to see your work over the years, it it really is exciting to have a kind of home between the covers as well.
2: Yes, but it's a funny paradox, because Mm -hmm. when you have a book, you have a bunch of different copies of it. So it's a philosophical question. Is each one of them a home? And I guess
0: they're, they're tiny houses, right? Is the tiny house movement?
1: Well, there's a lot of life in them. Oh,
0: thanks. When you have a group of eager and bright students and they've read these essays, what's the extra dimension for them when they get to encounter the author?
1: They probably won't have had a chance to read essays before Sandy arrives because these are hot off the press. In fact, the publication date, I think, is the 30th or the 31st of March.
2: It's the thirty first. So the book exists.
1: Yes. So we, we yeah. have them available at the Scranton bookstore and they're bootlegged copies. But, oh but no <laughs> not not really. But but part of the joy of it when you're a student is to get a sense that, that essays as you you learn to hear a voice on the page and that's a that's a pretty exciting experience. But then to have the advantage of hearing the real voice, the authentic author's voice in person, it, it changes it. So there really is a performative quality to an essay. And to be able to hear a skilled reader um, and writer do that, I'm really excited for the students. And and they'll, of course, have a chance then to talk to Sandy as well, as will anybody who's able to make it to to the reading, which is going to be on Wednesday, March 22nd at 6 o'clock at the University of Scranton in Brennan Hall. And it's free. It's free. free. (laughs) And we will have some copies of the book for sale, even if it's not entirely kosher. Yeah,
2: but, you know, you have to knock and say the password. Joe sent me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: In this case, Joe invited her, Dr. Joe Kraus, chair of the Department of English and Theater at the University of Scranton, a longtime friend of Sandy Weisenberg. Sandy Weisenberg is an award-winning author. She will read from her latest book, *The Wandering Womb: Essays in Search of a Home*, that is winner of the 2022 Juniper Prize in Creative Nonfiction issued, as we just heard, on March 31st by the University of Massachusetts Press. The event, which is free and open to the public, will include a reading by Sandy, as well as time for questions and book signings. And you can find the reading in Pern Auditorium, Brennan 228. That's tomorrow evening at 6, Wednesday, March 22nd at 6 in the Pern Auditorium, Brennan 228, on the campus of the University of Scranton. Again, it's Sandy Weisenberg, often referred to as S.L. Weisenberg, W-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. And she will visit the University of Scranton tomorrow, and she'll have a public presentation at 6 o'clock, that is free, the pern Auditorium, Brennan 228. And there will be a reading as well as a Q&A, and, Book signings. And for more information, scranton.edu, scranton.edu. The talk is hosted by the Slattery Center, the Weinberg Jewish Studies Program, and the University Reading Series, and it's tomorrow evening at 6. Mission is free. You're tuned to Art Scene on WVIA, and we've just